welcome back to another episode of the Rethink Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Bach, and today we are joined by my guest, Oliver Brunschweiler. Oliver is a board member and former lead link, a title that is basically equivalent to CEO of Freitag. Freitag is a global brand that creates one-off bags and accessories that are made from used truck tarps and fully compostable textiles. Oliver first joined Freitag in 2014 as the company's head of brand before becoming LeadLink in 2018. But by the end of 2021, Oliver decided to distribute most operational roles into a leadership collective so that he could focus on his long-term mission to enable the brand's potential, unlock sustainable growth, and design its circular business model transformation. Certainly no easy task. Thank you so much for joining the show today, Oliver. Thank you for having me, Gabriella. Absolutely. And I'm excited to have you on the show. I think Freitag is it's such a cool company. And side note, back in uh, 2020, so um, a million years ago, um, we were in the process of creating a magazine, which we were highlighting some of the best retail stores in the world. We did a whole voting process with our top retail influencers. And your Zurich flagship was voted as uh, one of our top 20 stores in the world. And uh, you know, the magazine was pretty much ready. We had a whole plan in place to launch in March of 2020. So as you can imagine, it was literally the worst time to publish a magazine on in-store shopping experience. Um, But yeah, we've we've been a big fan of the brand. Um, And for our listeners who might not already be uh, familiar with Freitag, um, you know, it all kind of started out with two brothers and a truck tarp, which is a great origin story. And Oliver, I'm sure you've told it a million times, but um, would you mind just quickly sharing that story with our listeners? <laughs> Thanks. It's always great to hear um, that Americans actually notice our brand because we're actually <laughs> a global brand, but uh, mostly in the eastern part of the world and not in the western part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because our business model has some limitations, we cannot just scale it and, and call the factory and tell them to, to produce more. So it's a very manual process. It's a very complex process. Um, so the company grew out of an apartment by two brothers that shared not just their bloodlines and DNA, but a parallel way of thinking and acting in cycles. For them, sustainability wasn't really on their mind. That word to us is more of a swear word. It's kind of bad language because we see a thousand companies greenwashing their services and product with words. Mm. So they grew the company in the first years um, was very natural because as talented designers, they considered anything that was waste as a design error. Mm-hmm. It was a progression recycling materials at the, at the time Um, and creating a unique design object that is robust and tailored for bike messengers, which were the new heroes at that time. Interestingly, um, one of the original test grounds in 1993, when they founded the company in their apartment, was San Francisco, because Ah. the city was, was home to um, some of the first hardcore bike messengers. So Freida created the first bike messenger bag, which is now exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The permanent oh, exhibit. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so we have 
we are rooted actually at least in the t- in US test ground <laughs> because bike methods were born there. Um, but we became a very European country, um, born out of Zurich, um, a little big city, as we call it here, and and grew more into the, to the Eastern world of, of, the, of the world. Wow, yeah, that's a fascinating origin story. And I, I so interesting that, you know, San Francisco was a, a testing ground here in the United States. And as you as you mentioned, bike messaging was wildly popular there in the 90s. And I assuming it still is pretty popular there. Um, I actually had a friend who was a bike messenger and he biked all the way from Chicago to San Francisco to work there. So um, and were there brothers themselves or either of them like bike messengers? Was this a creation of necessity? Yeah, they were both students. So one of them was a window decorator and the other one was a graphic designer. So they were actually looking for a robust bag to to carry around their stuff with them. At that time, you had no computers, but a lot of mm-hmm. pencils and paper and stuff to glue stuff together, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so they re- needed that robust bag, and it was like really made for themselves. So it really grew out of the student community, and of course, the cheapest transport at that time was was cycling. Today, um, the cycling movement stands for sustainability, transforming cities. So that adapts pretty well with the original story and the current situations we're facing with the transformation of cities. Mm-hmm. So so were they, you know, one of them standing on the road one day and, and a truck passed by and, and they were like, that's it. That's the bag. And, and how did how did that come about? That's it. That's the founder story. Um, there is a so-called hard bridge um, crossing the city of Zurich. Uh-huh. And so one of the brothers saw crossing those trucks and he thought of, oh, what's going to happen with the truck tarp when they don't use it anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, because he, at that time, already considered used materials as more beautiful than new materials. The Japanese actually call these wabi-sabi, the beauty of imperfection. Mm. Or as we call it, slightly fucked up. <laughs> so when when we when we buy used truck up even today in a couple of hundred tons per year from European transit route transport companies, um, we like it slightly fucked up. <laughs> we like the wabi sabi and um, this patina, which makes um, these products not shiny but original. And so. Yeah, the, the the idea, the design idea of using something old that that is actually nicer than a new uh, material was born on that bridge or in an apartment next to that bridge, actually. Well, that's a great story. Um, I I really enjoyed hearing about uh, you know the journey of the brothers and how they founded this brand. Um, and you know, you have quite an interesting professional journey as well. Um, so once upon a time, before you were a retail executive, you were a professional snowboarder, which I don't think we we come by often. Um, so you know, I would I would love to hear about what what brought you off the slopes and into the C-suite. <laughs> Great question, Gabriela. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> I'm still on the slopes because when you live in an alpine country, the mountains are your backyard. Mm. In the late 80s, early 90s, I considered the snowboard boom as a cultural shock. It was a renewal, a revolution, 
crashing traditionalists universal understanding of their alpine environment mm-hmm. with the old man in the mountains crashing their environment and we were creators not followers some some kind of rebels not accepted to use t-bars and shred the same slope as skiers Mm-hmm. So at that time, when trade shows were exploding from the sheer mass of brands that wanted to show off their newest innovations, riding on the wave of a hyper trend, snowboarding, <laughs> the ski company execs next to our booth wore uh, steel ties, and we hosted parties instead of sales meetings. So that was that was a really crazy time. In today's world, we call such a trend disruption that wakes up industry and transforms them. So what brought me off the slopes, it was, I was one of the guys that designed my own products, created my own ads for my sponsors, altering all kinds of opportunities in collaboration. So after a few years, I co-founded one of the first apparel brands that became, at least in Europe, a must-have for the fast-growing sport. So as a matter of fact, entrepreneurship brought me off the mountains, <laughs> going first, creating a safe environment for others mm-hmm. to grow with a bold vision is what keeps me now going. Wow. You know, at, you know, at first thought, it sounds like quite a leap, but then, you know, I can definitely see the parallels between uh, snowboarding and leading a retail brand. As you know, you kind of mentioned you have to be agile, you have to be able to navigate through unexpected circumstances, trust your instincts. So at Freytag, your your previous title was uh, Lead Link. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So yeah, so that's pretty atypical um, title in the corporate world. And that is because Freytag isn't a hierarchy-based organizational structure. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, the holacracy structure that you guys uh, made the transition to and 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 how this style of organization um, helped shape the company within? Yes, of course. I think it was 2016 and the company was because the founders were never those classic execs. They were and remain creatives in their heart, their mind. So they always struggle to to lead the company. So they hired CEOs on different levels and it kind of never worked for them. So in 2016, in our search for a future-proof, agile form of organization, looking for an inclusive way, distributing authority and making decision-making transparent, looking into flexibility you need in strategic leadership because mm-hmm. as i said before disruption is all over the place these in these days you know you can't just uh, stick to your old business model anymore you have to take into account that this can and should change over the years so we came across holacracy um overall it's a self-organization form in our case Holacracy is designed by Brian Robertson. It's an American entrepreneur. And it's, it's a hierarchy of specialists. So the specialists, your, your specific skills are in the front of, of the organization form. And so the company is organized in, in Holons, independent circles. Employees in various roles make decisions based on their responsibilities. 
And but just you know, because there's no traditional management doesn't mean holacracy does away with hierarchies. It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely the opposite. Holacracy is deeply hierarchical, but one that constantly revolves around expert roles and current needs. Mm-hmm. So we can change it from within and not from the outside or from a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hierarchy of specialists. Yeah. So it sounds like like the company culture must be extremely purpose-driven and is, is structured in a way that then fosters creativity and innovation. And so then, then your role, you, you must be, you know, you have to be incredibly like tuned into all of the different strengths of your employees. And then I'm assuming kind of strategically planning projects kind of based on those strengths. Well, currently I, I lead in collaborative, inclusive manner in, in my roles. But a couple of months ago, I distributed even more of my accountabilities into uh, a collective leadership team. So mm. what I do is I give trust. <laughs> that means I distribute um, every couple of months until there's actually no old accountabilities left. So mm-hmm. um, then there's room that new things can grow and you can also grow on them. But for me, you know, that's a personal thing. For me, the best ideas win, not the hierarchies in general. You know, no matter what organization form you're using, it's it's about the hierarchies of uh, specialists and ideas and not of given hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like uh, Freitag must be uh, a great place to work. And and I imagine that uh, leading a company like Freitag, sustainability must be an issue that is uh, personally close to your heart. I am wondering, so how have you seen consumer opinions towards sustainability shift since joining the company back in 2014? Um, in general, since 2014 or 13 we saw rising awareness globally, of course. And I was really happy to see that because in 2014, we launched a circular organic material, which we call fabric. We made clothing out and it's completely compostable. And at that time, mm-hmm. um, the story was, was a fantastic story and it still is a fantastic story. But the awareness to buy into truly circular and sustainable product and service um, really thinking consciously about your next step in life wasn't really there so thanks to a younger generation this created a more sense of urgency because the urgency is now is now also proved by by a lot of people that 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 know about the um, global environment even more than we know mm-hmm. so so this is this urgency created a more conscious behavior in buying product and service. And we as a first mover, as a pioneering brand from the 90s, a recycling pioneer, we see people turning to us, uh, looking for truly and not greenwashing brands that tackle these issues with, with their purpose, with their company purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love to hear that. Um, and. As we're seeing more consumers then adopt interest in sustainability, um, you know, placing it higher on their list of priorities, especially among Gen Z and millennials, right? Um, so do you feel that uh, Freitag is an example 
of a sustainable brand that has really grown because of the increased consumer interest in sustainability? Um, like, would you say that that your growth kind of then parallels the growth of this trend? Yes, exactly. That's what happens right now. So we are also part of, of a good wave, but we don't see ourselves as a fully circular brand. So we created a circular roadmap on strategic level mm -hmm. because we don't see ourselves as where we want to be. Our um, company purpose reads intelligent design for a circular future. So that's where what every employee is aiming to for, right? And mm -hmm. everything below this purpose, which starts with strategy, with roadmap, um, but we're not there because implementation is hard. You know, strategy is simple. <laughs> implementation is hard. And so um, even in a competitive environment where we're not because we are a unique brand, you know, we, we don't have these, these issues with uh, mass products. We are unique. We have unique products and other mm -hmm. issues. But um, it, it's, you know, it's our own competition to reach that goal of this of this purpose. And that's um, tough for us too. But um, of course, we are in the middle of this of this positive wave. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about 2022 is that we are finally getting back to live person events. And one event Rethinker Retail is especially looking forward to this year is Shop Talk Europe. Taking place June 6th through 8th at Excel London, Shop Talk Europe is the new home for Europe's retail and grocery changemakers. The event is expected to see over 2,500 decision makers from leading retailers and brands. You'll also see startups, tech firms, investors, media like Rethink Retail, and analysts from around the world. Yes, we are all coming together to learn, network, collaborate, and evolve. The event will host more than 200 industry speakers. And if that wasn't enough to keep you busy, more than 250 companies will be showcasing the latest trends and innovations that are transforming the global retail sector. Qualifying retailers and brands can attend Shop Talk Europe for free and receive up to a 500 pound travel reimbursement through Shop Talk's world renowned hosted meeting program. For more information to see the lineup, or to register your company, shoptalkeurope.com is the place to visit. Again, that is shoptalkeurope.com. Yeah, that, that does sound tough. Um, and you know, especially scaling from a small local shop into a you know globally recognized brand with consumers all over the world, um, I'm sure it's very hard um, to to be fully circular. In a global world, it's kind of a, a lofty goal, at least right now. Um, but I know you guys do have methods and you do rate higher than many other brands, you know, your means of sustainable production. So I would love to hear a little bit about how, you know, you've been able to scale, you know, as sustainably as you have. 
Well, you know, the one of the beauties of the business model is based on the fact that each product is unique, as I said. At the mm -hmm. same time, the beast of the business model is buying goods, fish and use truck tarp in the right colors, because that's not scalable. Mm -hmm. um, it's a manual process with relationships to transport companies, logistic providers and small shippers. Mm -hmm. So the organic limitation results in a specific demand for fancier colors and designs like black color, gray, pink, but not blue, yellow, and uh, and red because we, we get sufficient of those colors. Mm -hmm. So this leads to a strong global collector's market. So our fans are mostly collectors because it's really addictive. You know, if you, <laughs> you see this one unique piece and um, you, you visit stores and you see other same models, but different products, you get it. So this, again, drives desirability and rareness. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, every bag out of a couple of hundred thousands per year is a very limited kind of thing. Because other brands, they're creating artificial drops, you know, mm -hmm. limited editions <laughs> since uh, 50 years. And for us, every product is a limited edition. So most brands need to artificially limit their availability. For us, limited availability is a natural thing. But, you know, as a brand, if you rely on your product assets alone, you don't create this breakthrough awareness like Freitag creates in some parts of the world. For example, we never advertised our products, but we mm -hmm. communicate because conscious buyers don't buy the brand. They, as you know, buy into the brand. And Freitag is a purpose and value-driven brand. So the whole organization is, is driven by, by our purpose, um, intelligent design for a circle of future, because everything can be designed intelligently, not mm -hmm. just the product, but also the process, the buying process, the retail store, the, the manufacturing process. Um, it's intelligent design doesn't create waste. And if you put that in the forefront of a brand, people start to communicate about it and, and you create natural followers without advertising. As a brand with, with limited resources, but uh, fully independent you, you always have to prove you're moving first with innovation. But, you know, as a, for marketing, for example, there is a platform we created we call Swap, where bag owners and lovers are trading their bags for free. And this is a nonprofit initiative in the name of one of our company values, mm -hmm. which says access over ownership. So we don't have to own everything. You can just swap share you know and and um we actually shut off our store since two years three years now when there's a black friday we mm -hmm. just say no commerce on these days because uh we 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 tried to get away from black friday friday a couple of years ago and we we um we put our swapping platform um instead of our web shop oh, i love that <laughs> i love that um, that's amazing so on the on the other hand on the analog end of the brand we push boundaries with retail experiences in some of our store where you create your own unique bag so mostly made of a used truck tarp leftovers from the production in, in zurich are used to create these uh, unique bags so you have another story using leftovers to produce or create your own product at retail 
yeah, I love to hear that you guys are finding new ways to even further repurpose your materials that will have already been repurposed. Um, and then, you know, having it become part of this just very high touch retail experience. Um, yeah, that's, that's really smart. Yeah, I have maybe another example, you know, which might be interesting for you. Because, you know, we are telling stories of smart recycling when we launch new products, usually. For example, there's bee stock airbag material. Every year, there are thousands of bee stock airbags for cars produced because the industry has such a high quality measurement. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's safety first. They create a lot of zero tolerance waste airbags with just minor faults, which we then buy from them. Beautiful, technical, robust materials with uh, long life cycles to create something meaningful. So we 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 don't just use the truck tarp, but we try to use other leftover materials from other industry, which are quite scalable. You know, if you only have like uh, one sail from one old sailboat, you you create like twenty bags. So it's mm -hmm. not really scalable. Um, you have to run around quite a lot to find a lot of uh, old sails from sailboats. <laughs> so it's not a very huge industry to recycle. So you have to find smart industries, bigger industries. We create a lot of waste, um, but nice materials. And this is what we also use. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and I love the, the, the example you shared, you know, really very, very creative, finding a way to repurpose manufacturer defects. So very cool stuff there. And, you know, I wanted to touch upon the pandemic a bit. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned you guys, you create very limited products and you don't market. And so maybe this didn't impact the brand at much, or maybe it did. But, um, you know, I, I'd like to know how the pandemic, if it did at all, impact Freitag in, in terms of sourcing and manufacturing did you did you see any impact there no we don't have the issue of social manufacturing because it's all based in europe um, you know the resilience of global supply chain is the topic or was the topic at least in the fashion industry for us this wasn't the issue because it's all it's all made and sourced in europe but um we we were a retail brand <laughs> and mm -hmm. we had to shift to e-commerce and shifting to e-commerce with unique products now imagine you have, you can go online and look into frightdog.ch. There's a shop, there's product categories, there's product pages, and you see a product page with um, 50 products on it. And so you see different colors. And now imagine all shops are closing and everybody, all your customers want to go online. So mm -hmm. um, they're buying the nice colors. So there's much more traffic online and they're buying the nice colors. And in order to keep that good, picture of a good color mix you have to constantly curate this page mm. so that the, the conversion rate doesn't doesn't go down because mm -hmm. um, if you only see like blues and reds um, the conversion rate goes down and this was a huge challenge because we're not as i said a mass mass article brand if you have a thousand blue jeans in the same color um, you just you know <laughs> put another thousand up but it's the same product you know and for us this was really really tricky and this took a couple of months. So there, you know, before we were multi-channel, we had this multi-channel strategy. And then, um, of course, like every other um, global brand, we had to become a digital first strategy brand. Mm -hmm. And 
And how how do you make sure you know the best ideas in a in a in a period like this are surfacing? Because it it's still about human resilience in probably the most disruptive time in 20 years. Imagine a 25 or even 35 year, I don't know how old you are, <laughs> um, co-worker who has never experienced that kind of disruption. So we really have to stress stress your um your flexibility and because it always went up and you have mm -hmm. to change crazy things within months um in a business environment so you, you had we had to recalibrate our current strategy and our organization form really helped a lot because it's agile it's self-organization so certain roles were doing that and the next day we're doing that and um uh, probably all global brands face these issues, but sure. I can say um, now that that organization form worked, strategy worked, and even in our case, the tricky part, selling unique pieces online, worked now in the long long run or longer run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, because to your point, um, you know, I didn't even really consider how challenging it would be to keep products updated when, when they're one of a kind like that. Um, you know, especially when there are certain colors that are higher in demand. And so you don't want to be left with a page of just all the, the wacky experimental colors. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, I, I did want to know, did you guys see any shifts during the pandemic and like the type of items that consumers were purchasing, were they purchasing, um, you know, messenger bags less because people weren't really commuting as much at the time or, you know, did, did you see any, any shifts there? Um, not really because as I said, it's still a collector's market. So <laughs> even though people didn't really travel anymore, um, you know the, the the product shift wasn't there because our portfolio is a very wide portfolio, a very you know, broad portfolio, and it was the concentration on our classic products like the mm -hmm. messenger bags was even stronger because people wanted to have the original and not the next model they created that we created mm -hmm. like the last five years, and that was kind of funny. So this this concentration on the true old um, values of this brand um, in most markets, even in Europe. And so this was pretty funny. But now for me, the pandemic was more a very positive thing. It created a circular roadmap. And now we're in the middle of creating a new today to change our own future. Mm, that's excellent. And, you know, you led the company through the pandemic and, you know, for the industry as a whole, like, do you think the pandemic was a catalyst or an obstacle for, you know, corporate uh, retail sustainability? Great question. I think it was absolute a catalyst. And it was a catalyst also for brands that are not future-proof in terms of sustainability strategy. Mm -hmm. So this really comes into effect now. You see... You see this merging now, um, post-pandemic effects merging with sustainability drive that was created also again within the pandemic. 
so first there was panic for a lot of people that were really conscious um, and say, oh, now we have to lose our focus on on circularity, sustainability, because we have other issues, other mm-hmm. urgency. And that was the case in the beginning. But then after year one, um, all the, the future-proof brands like Patagonia, for example, they came back to the sustainability um, strategy and they kept going on that. And, and I think we're also one of these brands, um, a little slower <laughs> because we're European Swiss, but we are on the same, on the right track now. And we, as I said, we created something that wasn't there before, circularity, an even stronger circular purpose. We kept going with the self-organization form. So yeah, the resilience was, was, uh, was everybody asked for resilience, but yeah, I think we're future-proof now. Well, that's great to hear. It definitely leaves me feeling positive. Um, but I, I did want to ask, so, you know, we know that convenience has become one of the most important, if not the most important factor when it comes to purchase decisions, um, which was already a, a growing trend, but it's it was definitely exacerbated by the pandemic. And I know that the Freitag customer seems to be a, a consumers that, that is very, very intentional with their purchases. But for the most part, you know, many, many studies have indicated that the majority of consumers will um, the only, they'll make sustainable purchases when it's convenient for them. So, you know, I'd love to get your take on, on how, how you think retailers um, should be thinking about this. You know, how can, how can they balance these two preferences? Hmm. Well, you know, I, we can't tell people what, where and how to shop. Um, I, we would love to see more brands that inspire consumers to become users and not just consumers. Our manifest actually answers a lot of these questions. For example, we say we only own objects that last. We repair. We believe in systems designed for compatibility. We prefer access over ownership. It's actually all on our website. It's transparent. Everybody can read it. So if you have your own manifesto, your values that drive your brand, um, probably most people want to work for those brands in these days and not for the other ones, not for the, sorry, fast fashion brands, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think of the next generation to come. So the next generation will drive out the pure convenient decision and change that to a holistic decision-making process for buyers or users. I mean, I totally get it. We're not there yet, <laughs> but that's why we need inspiring brands and mm-hmm. we see them rising. And again, I can say Patagonia is an inspiring brand and you see them rising and you see their numbers. And, and if you see that, that's your next investment. That's your next decision when you're buying to stuff you might need you don't need everything (laughs) so minimal living you know is a buzzword it's a trend but i think we're in a transition phase where at least the western um or the mature society will go there you know and again inspire others so it's a process it's not like a trend which happens within two, three, five years. It's a process that's going through a whole generation now because you see the urgency at the other hand. And it will not be like, let's consume less. 
let's mm-hmm. consume better you know because mm. less is not the right answer to uh, make people feel comfortable or you know <laughs> it's it's uh, not as enticing as better no <laughs> exactly exactly yeah and i think you know with consuming consumption it's very much um at least here in the united states it's it's a big a big part of our culture it's 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 married into the into the culture here where you know the the trend cycles they they're shifting rapidly and um you know i i definitely hope to see people moving away from that and uh, adopting as you mentioned uh better consumption practices and you know maybe riding their bicycle more and uh carrying their belongings with a uh, fry tag bag Oh, I think the U.S. will be first. I mean, you see this in technology because technology is um, one major part to transform societies into a to a more sustainable world, and and um, you see these hypertrends first happening really, really, you know, like well in the U.S. Even in farming, we see that in food industry, we see that in the U.S. Uh, um, it, but it just starts in the Western societies currently, you know, and, and gets adopted really, really fast by Asian societies. But it's, as I said, it's a process, you know, you don't mm-hmm. have to push this and you don't have to be, you know, in a hurry or, you know, tell yourself not change tomorrow. Um, not at all. It, it, you have to be, you know, safe <laughs> to to uh, change your behaviors or mm-hmm. your buying practices. I mean, I just started buying shoes that last now. So, you know, don't don't stress yourself as a consumer. Excellent. And, you know, Oliver, as we wrap, is there a message you'd like to share with other brands about what it means to um, truly be a, a leader in sustainability? Hmm. I'll make an example. We're currently building a new retail experience in a very big market. Our team can't travel there since two years. So it's all about remote working with the team, architects, creatives, um, to create this new retail experience. So for us, first, it's you have to trust. <laughs> you have to trust others mm-hmm. because not just the pandemic, but also the disruptive um economy created created distances so we have to trust others that's maybe the first second total impact intrinsic motivation in your organization according to a company purpose is something really good for organizations that run brands to the public or to consumers um to become a leader your priorities must be aligned to your purpose so second for brands, sustainable brands, or want to become sustainable brands, find your purpose. Mm-hmm. Find your purpose, your organization can follow, your strategy can be aligned to. And maybe third, you need a roadmap. Because not strategy, but implementation is the hard part. And no matter which industry you're in, in an inclusive organization, you can create an inclusive, ambitious roadmap on a strategic level where people are collaborating to create a meaningful circular or sustainable future. Mm-hmm. So trust, purpose, roadmap. So grab a map and go find your purpose. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Oliver, I, I want to thank you so much for joining the show today. It is uh, evident that if you're a company that's sustainability 
goes way beyond the product and is woven throughout the company and culture, um, which is something that I hope other retailers emulate as we all work to forge a path to a sustainable future. So again, such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I look forward to seeing what your brand does next. Thank you very much, Gabriela. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.